0: Thank you.
1: And welcome to Punks and Pubs. My name is Liam Bird and I hope you are all well. Let's start by talking about the news. We have news. Punks and Pubs will be going to Punk Rock Holiday in Tomlin, Slovenia. <laughs> ...kicks off on August the 6th. The lineup so far is No Effects, Descendants, Propagandy, uh, Frank Turner, Sick of It All, Less Than Jake, Ignite, Pears, Pup, Mask Intruder, just to name a few of those motherfuckers. And like Pokemon, I'm looking to try and catch them all for this podcast to interview... Well, I say I'm going to catch them all. That's that's a lie. Uh, I'm looking to catch about three or four interviews while I'm there. We are poor as fuck. We can't afford the flights from uh, London to, to Slovenia because they're around about £400 once you factor in travel and uh, baggage and all that shit. So... Me and my friend Darren are going to drive. We are going to drive from London to Tomlin, Slovenia. We will be driving through France, Germany and Austria before we make it into Slovenia. I'm going to document this on our Instagram stories. You can follow the Punks in Pubs Instagram account at Punks in Pubs where we will try and bring you what we're doing as we go through each country and i'm sure shit will happen uh, bad shit probably of car breaking down and all that kind of crap follow us on instagram so you don't miss a thing and i'm pretty sure you know what's about to come next please 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 please, please go buy a punks and pubs t-shirt i can't stress how uh, we can't afford this We can't afford to go to this festival at all. I've spent all the Punks and Pubs reserve money on going to Berlin, which we're going to in a couple of uh, weeks' time, to do an interview out there for Punks and Pubs. I really do need your support in this one. So, yeah, we're driving because we can't afford it. We're going to be making a near 2,000-mile round trip in a car, which I'm not sure will survive. So please go to the Etsy website, type in Punks and Pubs in the search engine, and uh, you will see our T-shirts there or click the link on your phone in this bio for this episode pick up a t-shirt that way and support us going to Tomlin so we can bring you some fantastic interviews Just like we did last week at a festival, that was a little bit closer to home. It was literally 15-minute drive from my house. It was called Slam Dunk Festival. We went Slam Dunk South at Hatfield House. We had a blast. Thank you so much to Slam Dunk for letting punks in pubs be part of this year's festival. Me and my mates had a blast watching Turnstile, Bronx, Cancer Bats, Anti Flag, Mad Caddies, The Menzingers, The Interrupters. No effects, but there was one downside. I missed Bad Religion. I have a history of missing Bad Religion. Whenever they're over in the UK, I'll either don't have the money or I'm at the wrong place at the wrong time or someone just hasn't come through with a ticket. It's been annoying. So, Slam Dunk was my time to watch Bad Religion. I was pumped, I was excited, and then I got an email a couple of weeks before which read like this. Hey Liam, hope you're well. We would love to do this interview. We get off stage around seven o'clock. Let's chat then. I look at the stage times for slam dunk. Motherfucker, fucking Bad Religion's on the seven o'clock. I miss Bad Religion again, but this time I actually don't care because I got the opportunity to interview one of the nicest guys in punk rock. His name is Joey Cape. Most of you will know Joey uh, through his band Lagwagon and I spoke to Joey in his tour bus. Uh, for anyone who is listening to this, who's thinking about starting a podcast in music, here's a tip for you. Avoid doing interviews in tour buses. I know this, but yet I still did it. We did it because it was the only place we could actually do the interview. Fucking tour buses, their air cons sound like jet engines taking off a new mic. Your ears will adapt to the noise of the aircon, but it is fucking annoying. I sent the audio off to a friend of the pod, Stephen Burke, and he had a play with it. He's dulled the noise a little bit, but it's still there, unfortunately. So again, apologies. Your ears will adapt. Also, I'm going to apologize on Joey's behalf because Joey's mic skills in interviewing is shit. For a man who's a lead singer, you think he'll know whereabouts he needs to point the mic into his face, but he doesn't. He, he never really directly talks into the mic. I moved it once to be closer to his face. But he kind of gave me the look of what the fuck you doing, motherfucker. So I backed away. So I allowed him to do his own thing. And uh, unfortunately, to try for you guys to be able to hear what he's saying, sometimes I've had to push the gain up on the mic, which can make it, make it sound like there's static in the audio. Again, your ears will adapt just deal with it also while i'm in the mood for apologizing i should probably also apologize for my own behavior i listen to the audio and i can tell that i am drunk i i mean come on i was at a festival the interview was at seven o'clock in the evening i'm gonna have beers you know i'm gonna have beers i'm not a professional i mean if you want professional people in your podcast go listen to turn out a punk this is not that podcast people this is not that podcast so let me quickly give you a little bit of a roundup on about Joey if you don't know who Joey Cape is. Randolph Joey Cape was born on November the 16th 1966 in California. Uh, you all know him best as the lead singer of Lagwagon. Whereabouts He has been the vocalist of this band since 1989 and is still going strong. Joey has an epic cv he is a member of the punk rock cover supergroup me first and the gimme give he was the lead vocalist of an experimental band called bad astronaut until they disbanded due to the death of two drummers he's also released several solo albums and he's got a new solo album coming out in july i believe called let me know when you give up now you know a little bit about joey's background what did me and joey talk about well we talk about game of thrones And if you've not seen the last season of Game of Thrones, skip ahead because we spoil the shit out of Game of Thrones. Skip about five or six minutes ahead. You should be safe there. Joey also reminisces about sneaking out of his bedroom window and going to punk shows as a kid and then getting a fuck knocked out of him in the pit and then having to go home and explain his bruises. Uh, We talk about Lagwagon signing to fat. We also talk about... The rebirth of punk in 94 quotation marks where record labels were lucky to pick up any punk band in the scene at at that point in time. And uh, Joey talks about a time that Priority Records which I believe is Ice Cube's label came to watch them play and they left after about one song. Uh, Joey retells that story. We talk about the impact that Tony Hawk had on the punk community at the time and we also talk about Watch Dogs 2, the computer game, because Joey actually does some vocal work in that game and this leads on to Joey talking about how he would like to do some more voice acting work. We, of course, talk about The Gimmies, in particular the live album "Ruined Johnny's Bar Mitzvah. We change the tone a little bit and talk about Bad Astronaut and the death of those two drummers, Derek and Eric. This leads on to us talking about the death of Tony Sly as well as mental health. And we finish up with news of Joey's new album and an announcement of a new Lagwagon record coming soon. As always, your band play out the show, and this week there are a band with members from Finland, Spain, Italy. They are based in Helsinki, Finland, and they are called Teresa Banks. You definitely want to stick around for that. But before that, there's this. I give to you my time at Slam Dunk, episode 59 of Punks and Pubs with Joey Cape. I will talk to you a little bit more after this interview. Enjoy. sundung festival we are not in a bar we are in a nice lovely bus we have been offered drinks but we've turned them down because <laughs> my guest is not drinking joey cape why aren't you drinking mate
2: um you know just taking a break having yeah. a little breather yeah yeah fair enough
1: no real reason you got
2: to do that every once in a while
1: yeah so let's talk about the really important stuff and i know that you are a fan game of thrones
2: how yes. did you feel,
1: mate? How, like it was. Rough. I, I did you enjoy it? quite enjoyed the ending,
2: and I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I thought it was kind of perfect. I thought really? it was poetic. Yeah.
1: When yeah. you're annoyed, like
2: it just kind of nothing matters. You know what? Everyone is always going to be disappointed with the last episode of a show.
1: That's well, just the Sopranos, the it I, I would disagree. The but Sopranos I find, was perfect. What's that? The Sopranos was perfect. Oh. See, I don't agree with that. Oh well,
2: we've clearly yeah. got different. Yeah, types we, 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 in, we we we. Yeah, yeah. I, I found. I I think the anti-ending that you know Sopranos, uh, Seinfeld, it, you know I I understand why they do that, but that seems like it's almost in sort of in reaction to the pressure of a last episode. Whereas I thought Game of Thrones episode was pretty much mis- I I thought the whole season was just about perfect. I yeah. loved it.
1: Would would you not have liked it, though, to have been a bit more spaced out? Because it, it felt... Cre- like, we've all been talking about this White Walker's coming, coming, coming. And all of a sudden, one episode, done.
2: Didn't you find that annoying? Not really. It was an hour and a half battle. Oh, mate. I mean, that's the longest in the history of television and film. That's right. It was like Braveheart scene times 12 or something, you know? Yeah. I... I, I I thought that episode was epic, and I love that Arya killed him, because she reminds me of my daughter.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, when I first started
2: watching the show eight years ago, or whenever it started, uh, my friends and I that know me well and know my daughter, my daughter was about eight at the time, or seven. And I kept getting these text messages, Oh my God, Arya Stark, she looks just like Violet. And I was like, I know. And if she dies, I'm going to stop watching this show. <laughs> oh, man. I can't handle it, you know? It's crazy. So to see her, you know, kill the the main White Walker was uh, quite enjoyable for me, actually. I really liked that. I, I think that uh, I went in with lower expectations of the last episode because I just watched it a few days ago. Mm. So everyone on this bus had already seen the entire season. Yeah. And I just... I you know I I did the thing I I watched
1: it in like two nights, uh, I just so are you still it. are you still social then because I I can't understand how you would have avoided. The, 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 the no, spoilers. I don't do social media. I had you quit. So, but but I
2: do get notifications from certain news outlets. Yeah, and I do do that. And every single time the word Denarius came onto my phone, I just <laughs> swiped it as fast as I could without taking it in. But I knew that you know. Which wasn't a spoiler, because yeah. of course she's going to be heavily involved in whatever they're going to
1: do. What yeah. I enjoyed the most was everyone who had called their child Daenerys are now regretting it, because she's mass-murdered a lot. Yeah. By the way, spoilers. Uh, right. oh, yeah. By now, if you haven't seen it, you, <laughs> you deserve to get yeah, the spoiler. You don't care enough. You yeah. don't care enough. God, that's I'm, funny. I'm glad someone actually not even considered
2: enough. that. People would do that, name yeah. their child after and, I should, have Aria.
1: should have waited yeah, yeah Um so you're a man who has been in literally i'm gonna say literally and i hate when people go literally and then don't actually mean literally, literally. But you're, you're a man who's been in many many bands uh and, and you've been in punk rock or in the music industry for about the past 30 years and we're going to come to that in a second but what i would like to talk about quickly is these these are your own words so this is not me slagging you off but how you are the most least talented person in your family because your father was classically trained pianist Mm -hmm. and your sister on right is also classically trained musician and your brother is a jazz musician. Yes. How come you didn't go down? My mom
2: can't sing a note in tune though. So see, that's where where it balances out. Yeah. I got her, (laughs) I think in the DNA uh, pool, I I got, I got her genes and there's relative, uh, training as well you know so you do something long enough that you can kind of get by
1: are you youngest there was
2: yeah yeah but there was definitely more natural innate talent in my family Mm. for sure my father was a singer as well
1: oh really okay yeah Yeah.
2: and you know i think part of the problem is when you're a kid you have a higher voice and even if you're meant to be a baritone you sing in a tenor range and then if you're lucky like me and you made some records you have to live with those so Mm. You know, as you get older and naturally your voice wants to be in a certain range, you find yourself straining to keep singing the way you've been singing. And, you know, that that probably wasn't great for my voice. But, you know, I i always, I always looked at it as the thing that I'm sort of okay at is songwriting. Well, you, you're That's really better than okay,
1: thing. but yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: That's what I enjoy. It's... It would have been just fine with me to be a writer for other people you know yeah
1: yeah have, have you ever been asked to do that like because i know a lot of writers um, we get asked to do pop songs a, or something like that a lot
2: of producing that comes up yeah i produce a lot of records and and that sometimes there's collaboration you know there, there's there's always some collaboration with every song and rewrites and things like that but um there's usually one song that i have quite a you know, influence over mm. maybe even write part of and i I really like doing that it's it's a it's a rewarding um but you know the this the singing thing I mean I, I hadn't planned on that i I was in a band and the singer was a real jerk, and uh, we were in the studio making a demo, and he quit in the middle of the session, you know before the vocals were done and and then the producer of that. Said, Oh well there's three of you guys, one of you can sing. Yeah. And we all kinda of took a shot at it. And I guess I was the least horrible of the three of us and so that was it. Do
1: you feel comfortable like being the lead the Sometimes. Singer? Yeah. You know. Is it something you had to train yourself to do though? Or was it quite I mean, natural?
2: You know, it's I don't I don't think much about it now. I yeah. mean, I don't get nervous anymore. But uh, in the beginning, yeah, it was it was kinda of tough. Yeah. I did I, I started on drums, you know. I mean, my brother handed me a pair of drumsticks when I was eight years old and said, you need a drum, because I need a drummer. <laughs> yeah. And what kind of so music was that? I played jazz, that? you know, jazz. with my brother, yeah. Nice, yeah, yeah, And I, I you know, I wasn't very good. I was, I was very young. I, I think I played until I was about 15. And then I, I just, I picked up a guitar at 13, and I started playing guitar more and more, because uh, there was always one around. And I found it much easier to travel. When I was moving, moving with a drum set from a flat to flat, you know, mm nowhere where to play it It just after a while it just seemed like too much work
1: are you making no friends in whatever building you're in no, no you, you can't play.
2: you just can't yeah it's only band practice for drummers you know if there's a rented space and uh it's kind of shit you know and but you could play guitar anywhere yeah so, so that kind of happened.
1: So how come you didn't go down the, the jazz or classical, classical route? Was it like, I'm going to rebel against what my... Well, what my so brother they, and I they, did
2: was more jazz fusion. Yeah. It was like jazz rock, you know, these bands like uh, Coliseum was an English band. Um, it was that, We did more of that kind of thing. So it was a bit of a fusion thing. And, and uh, yeah, I just, I was into rock and roll, you know. Right. I just, oh, that was first love, you know. Yeah.
1: But was it like Jerry Lee Lewis, like that kind of like kind of crossover from the jazz into rock and roll no
2: my parents would listen to the beatles my dad listened to a lot of classical music but there was a lot of folk music on in our house and, yeah. and those kind of singer songwriter type bands simon and garfunkel credence clearwater revival and that kind of stuff was more what i was raised listening to and a lot of the female singer songwriters like carol king so i think i early on got kind of brainwashed into being a fan of song you know and there was definitely early doo-wop music that that i just stuck with me and then i heard the ramones you know i went, oh listen to this you can do doo-wop like this um and then motorhead you know and things like that but i i mean you know when you're a little kid you want to spaz i wanted it to be fast and heavy yeah so but do you metal think- and punk rock always made sense to me
1: do you think like as you've got older though have you noticed that actually the music that you were listening to as a kid with your family is actually actually it's ingrained in me somewhere Whereas it's really wanted to come out now Yeah. and this is the point where I'm now in my 40s like I've decided that this is where I want to do music now
2: all of my favorite records you know the records that I feel like have formed me as a songwriter without sounding too pretentious there's no good way to say that I, they are all records that my folks listened to when I was a, a kid, you know, Elton John and things like that.
1: Yeah, you know. So when when was it? You you said the Ramones and Motorhead because I understand that you were actually a metal kid before you were a yeah, punk kid. I was. So so what was it about metal that you loved? And then how did you all I of a like sudden guitar, go? Guitar, you know, I like guitar solo Crunching, stage, yeah. And
2: I, liked, I liked the heaviness and the speed, and you know, of course, and. When I was a kid, when I first started getting into punk rock in the late '70s, um, I I liked it, but I didn't love it as much as the '70s hard rock stuff. And then I heard Motorhead, and they were kind of the answer. You know, they were kind of the band that they they were metal and they were punk. You yeah, know? They, yeah, yeah, they they kind of had this thing that nobody else had, and um, they were the one band that the metalheads and the punks shared. Which is kind of funny, you know? Yeah. I mean, did something right there.
1: Well, it's Immortal Enemies, really, metal and punk. or They were meant to be like Mortal Enemies, like in the 70s, 80s, like metalheads yeah, you know, and punks. Yeah, the punks, punks like metalheads yeah. and the metalheads thought the
2: punks were
1: stupid and so on. So when you went to your first punk show, were you aware of that? Were you like, I, I need to be quiet that I'm not, like people don't find out I'm actually a metal fan when you went to your first punk coke? Or were My you like, pretty balls punk out? It was
2: an X show okay yeah and they were a lighter version of those things you know so uh i showed up i was surfing a lot then and i showed up in like flip flops like i did there was a lot of you're not supposed to do this moments in my early years but i was i was probably three feet tall you know (laughs) or less i mean i was so small nobody was gonna pick on me
1: yeah but i mean at that time punk in california was quite a dicey uh scene yeah, yeah. so were you were you literally that that knowing that you just weren't i was like, scared i it. remember going to punk
2: shows when i was 14 and you know just being on the outskirt and watching people slam dance and thinking like oh i'm not going in there yeah you know um but uh but you know it's kind of exhilarating too when you're a little kid just brave the braveness of yeah. going to a show with all these old yeah all those guys in los angeles you know
1: because i talk a lot about my first time i went into the pit and i must have been about 14 15 mm-hmm. and it was scary as fuck man yeah. like these big skinheads circling around right. bashing into each other and like you kind of kind of touched on it it was that excitement of i might get hurt but i might not and I right. f- if i survive this is a fucking great yeah. story
2: I, I mean, there were always circle pits, you know. In, in, in the early 80s, they started becoming circle pits. And once I, would, I saw that, I thought, well, this isn't too hard. you just got to move in a circle. As long as you keep moving, you'll be all right. Yeah. But it turns out that uh, my face was right at elbow level for most people. So <laughs> I think it's hard to remember, but I feel like the first time I went into a pit was at uh, a Venice beach... You know, like these bands like Suicidal and Excel and Beowulf. And that, it was one of those Venice Beach shows, and their fans were nuts. It was a place called Fender's Ballroom that was, you know, notoriously like bloody, the mm. shows. I mean, they were, yeah. And I, I went in the pit, and I, it, it, no time at all, I got whacked so hard that it knocked me out, and I kind of flew out of the pit on the ground, and I was all bruised up and everything. <laughs> okay, not quite ready for that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So you come home, like, busted up. Like, what were your family like? Like, why the fuck are you going to these shows? Or were they, they quite in, They didn't know sneak at all. Out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd go
2: into my room at seven o'clock at night and then I'd sneak out the back door and through a window. And then um, I would run down the street and get picked up by friends of mine that were old enough to drive and we would drive to the shows.
0: Another fool And I have to Keep telling myself That I am just a hypocrite
1: young so mm. what what band were you doing like music before that or were yeah. yeah so what I'm kind of music were you doing
2: before that uh, oh, my first thing was with my brother and then I had a band in 1980 uh, I had my first band um, we had the worst name I think we were called Deathlock or Cerebus the three headed dog that God's sake, you know it was a metal band yeah um, and that was with a friend of mine Jamie and this guy Jason Sears that later Went on to be the singer of RKL, and I, I played with um, with Barmer and Chris Rest, Chris Rest, who's in my wagon now and has been for a long time. Uh, Chris Barmer and I were playing together, and I was also playing with Jason in this other terrible band. And I said, I think I got the singer, and that's that's when RKL was born. Um, I lasted about a week in that because I was always grounded by my parents. I was constantly in trouble, so I was always on some restriction, you know. So I, I didn't stay in that band, um, but I had a number of bands. I went to college and I had a bunch of really terrible cover bands and uh, played in punk bands and yeah. metal bands. And then I finally, when I when I got out of school, I I had a band called Chemical which was like kind of a crossover band maybe a little bit like DRI or something uh, except we had like 10 minute songs and it was totally ridiculous and that was the band that I started singing because the singer quit when we were in the studio and I ended up being the singer of that band and that was the first band that I wrote songs for Yeah. and this other band in town that we played with all the time was called Section 8 which is Lagwagon's first name and their singer um, it's 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 a good story I mean he my girlfriend started seeing him on the side and cheating on me with him and I lived with a guitar player in that band and one day I was just you know I was like crying completely smashed from this woman my first heartbreak and the guitar player said he took your chick man take his fucking band be our singer and I was like yes I will do that. And so I they kicked him out and I joined Section 8 and then
1: changed our name to Lagwagon. Oh, mate, that's the best, like, beginning yeah. story of any band.
2: And it's great because I'm still friends with those two people.
1: You know yeah, I mean? Oh, that's I, nice. I mean, you know, they know the story. Yeah. So let's talk Lagwagon then. So Lagwagon, um, early 90s, uh, you, you were gigging. Can you remember the moment you were on stage and you looked around and you went, fuck, this band's actually going to do something. Like, we can actually tour this.
2: I don't, because in the early days, I think we were just so excited to even make an album, and then it was like the next album. Oh my God, we, we, we survived. We made another record. What I do actually recall is being on tour and, you know, supporting bands that were bigger and maybe having a good show every three shows, and, you know, you read a little criticism... remember the first time we played in england we played in camden at a club that i can't recall the name of and it's probably close yeah i'm sure yeah yeah maybe it burned down who knows but (laughs) you know camden but it the a writer from kerrang magazine came to the show and he wrote a review of our show that was the first time we did like a headlining show in england and he said uh I don't remember the exact quote, but this was more what I I recall of the early years is these kind of reviews, you know. He said something to the effect of, well, if you want to have fun, this is a good band to see just for fun, but if you're out to see something that's got longevity on its side or is it all serious or something to take seriously, maybe this isn't for you. That was basically the review we got. Three stars. Three stars, yeah, exactly. It was the, the lukewarm you know yeah thank you yeah. and I remember that was the first time that I was angered by criticism and also one of the first times that I decided maybe reading criticism isn't necessary because you kind of have to stay true to what you do and yeah I've basically never read anything since you know I, I just prefer not really know what
1: Think. i was gonna say was there a point where actually like oh, f- just fuck all the other noise like i know what we're doing i know yeah. i'm happy with what we're doing yeah well so you was know, it like it the is, early is days
2: your purity you know yeah i mean i've been saying that forever i think you just you have to just make music and it's a collective soul of these five guys for lack of a better term and you know you write songs you get together with your guys everybody puts their stamp of on it and it becomes what it becomes and if if you stay true to the nature of the band and the individuals in the band that's what that's the best you can do and if things go your way and you're doing it that way you're certainly going to enjoy your career more mm. it seems the only way to do it i think to get at all caught up in criticism or what people think is is really kind of
1: um, not good I think that's great advice for all art though. Like filming, even podcasting now, as long as you're enjoying it and, and you're, and you're digging it and the people who you give a shit about is digging it. Fuck everyone else. People
2: identify with it as well. I mean, they see that they see that your conviction, you know, if you do what you love, they can see it. Hmm. And that's for better or worse, the best, uh, I think it's the best thing you can do. 100% 100% agree. If you're going to get any kind of individual, um, you know, sound yeah. or uh, any kind of bar, I think you have to stay true to what makes you feel good because that's generally going to be what you're best at.
1: So clearly a man who's always kind of believed in you is, is uh, Mike, Fat Mike. And in 92, you signed to fat. Yeah. What was it that... You- Mike said to you or has said to you in the past the reason why he has signed you because I've interviewed the Bomb Pops before and they said that Mike was highly critical of them before he signed them. Yeah. Like was he the same with you when he was younger or was he a lot more let loose?
2: There was one uh, like he had one criticism He, he thought we were too metal. Yeah. But he really liked what we were doing. I mean we virtually come from the same you know, ball of wax has no effects. I mean, I'm older than Mike, and we come from the same part of the world, and I think many of the same bands that we both love. You know, so it, it it was more like we were peers. Hmm. And when I gave him our demo tape, uh, he just well. called me the next day and said, "I love this. It'd be perfect for my label as a first release." And then he, I think he released like an OFX7. So he, he cheated us of our flagship status. Although I always say, well, ours was a full length, so flagship band. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was it. He just thought, um, he said it's, a lot of this stuff is really metal. Hey, Joe, can you... Oh, someone's out there, huh? I was going to say maybe we could close that door, but I don't know if it matters.
1: I mean, it's, it's all fine. The air conditioning... Is is making in. noises, yeah, well so it's fine. It's all good, man. So, so yeah, just kind of picking up on um, with with, with uh, signing to Fat, and then obviously ninety four is a year where everyone kind of talks about the regeneration of punk music. Because you had uh, Green Day, uh, you had Offspring, No Effects, yeah. Rancid, and yourself. But yourself, Landwagon, your album. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to read my notes very quickly um trash probably. Yes, came out in early February. So your your album actually just kind of like the the one that if you want to talk about it, it's like kind of kicked off the rest of them because no, I
2: mean just by date really. Yeah.
1: But for this purpose of this interview I'm definitely sure. pushing you as the <laughs> the, right. the, the, the one That's that kicked off. I mean. So like in 94 like was it kind of like holy shit where's this come from or was it actually kind of like a slow decline uh, increase?
2: You know, I I I, did, I wasn't all that surprised because The Nirvana thing had already happened, and I remember thinking when I first heard Kerplunk, the Green Day record, I remember Kerplunk thinking, this is so catchy. Mm. Reminds me a lot of the Buzzcocks, bands that I had already listened to that were power pop bands, and yet they kind of had their own thing, and I really was almost one hundred percent certain that when they made Dookie that it was gonna be huge. Yeah. Because they, they were there was a groundswell with them that was you know, and the thing is is it's very different than the world we were in. I mean we knew them, we used to play shows with them. Um, we did a tour with them before they were big. But, you know, once a band becomes a mainstream band at that level sells what did they sell like ten million of Dookie or something I mean, that, that's just automatically they are not a part of our world anymore. Mm-hmm. Not by choice, for them or us. You know, I I never had any problem with a band getting big and famous. It didn't matter to me if they stayed true to the music that I liked. Um, but you know, they all of a sudden they were, uh, you know, yeah, a, a giant band. Yeah, so they're playing arenas, and we're still playing punk shows. And then the same happened for Offspring and then Rancid and you know, I just think it, it all kind of made sense, you know. Nirvana, I think, in a way sort of broke down the doors, broke down the walls, I should say. Yeah. Uh, and then it, Green Day was just right on time. It definitely and once seemed... that happened, so many other bands followed, you know.
1: Yeah. Because at that time obviously Green Day left Luck Out and mm-hmm. they were they were put on to um... Was it Madonna's label? Was that is that what it is? Well, at
2: first, they signed to Columbia. That was it. And they ended up on um, Warner Brothers, I think. Yeah. But they actually made a demo tape that was circulating of three songs from Dookie Duke, Duke, uh, that, w- that say Columbia Records on the cassette tape. But I still have it. It's like a green cassette tape. And it was not well produced. I, I didn't. And then... I think they pulled a fast one, I think that right at the last, in the 11th hour, they went over to Warner Brothers and they, I, I don't really know the story, but they they switched labels after they had signed a deal, I think,
1: so yeah.
2: it was uh, kind of a Sex Pistols move.
1: So at that time, obviously a lot of majors started sniffing around because they saw money. After that, yeah. So what about you, Like, were you ever yeah, tapped like- up, no?
2: Yeah, I, we there was a, almost a shark frenzy for a little while. Yeah, but, but the bands they were looking for, they were looking for pop bands, you know. And we were still pretty metal, and I think maybe a little hard, and we certainly weren't. Um, I think visually, the right band, you know. We have a giant. We have a monkey. That's me <laughs> <laughs> running around with the giant in circles. Um, I'm not sure that we had the uh, the look. And and, and I, I really don't know why But we, we were barely approached Yeah There was one show We played at the Roxy Theater On the Trash Tour And a guy from uh, What was Ice Cube's label called I can't even remember A guy from that label You know We, we had been told in advance He was going to come see the band talk to us about signing the label priority records. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And this guy came to this show and I someone pointed him out to me before we went on stage and I and I watched him watch half of a song and then walk out. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, "Good." Yeah. Cuz that made me nervous and I did not want to have to reject anybody, you know. I mean, we didn't we didn't really want to do any of that kind of thing. That wasn't what we were after. I was always in touch with the idea that it there might be more longevity and uh, just less drama if we just stuck with uh, what we were doing
1: so in 94 was that the point where I actually realized this is actually now our job like we can actually make a living out of this yeah, so, yeah.
2: we played 280 shows that year mm. and I remember being gone the whole year and thinking to myself well as long as I'm always gone I don't have to pay rent for a flat and I don't have to get a job so how do we get an album out really fast and get right back on this tour <laughs> <laughs> because I'm homeless yeah you know? so I think that was sort of what all of us did for the first five years of the band
1: you know yeah. we just stayed on friends' sofas and that kind of thing but you've been touring like since they dot though like we've either with Ladwagon or Bad Astronauts or yeah. your solo stuff you're constantly on the road yeah do you think you're addicted to it? Do you think like you've got to a point where, I've actually, like, I don't feel comfortable if I'm not, like, in a different city or in a different time zone. Well, there's a part of that that's true. I, I,
2: I don't feel like addiction's the right way to describe it. I, th- I feel like it's, it's more a matter of you know, the old saying, "A rolling stone gathers no moss." I think. There's a feeling that I get when I'm home, when I first get home, where I, I sort of sigh in relief, and I like to be home, and especially since I had a child. Um, but if I'm home for more than a month, I get a little itchy. You know, it just doesn't quite feel right to have the routine that I have at home, and it's not an addiction. It's more just a matter of that's how I've learned to live, you know, for so many years. But the other part of it is, one thing that hasn't really changed is that I still do have to tour as much as possible just to make ends meet, you know, because I still don't have a real job. Yeah. This is my job. And once records basically stop selling, then tour, yeah, yeah. And th- there were years that Lagwagon slowed down a bit, but I had this other band me first in the Gimme gimmies that was touring, and then... I formed Bad Astronaut. We didn't really tour. We did some shows. Formed another band. You know, I'd start doing solo stuff. I mean, a lot of that was because I wanted to do different things musically and didn't want the band to change. I just wanted to keep doing what Lagwagon did best. But, <clears throat> but also, um, yeah, just being able to tour multiple outlets. You know,
0: for having outlets for that.
1: touched on when record sales stopped like stopped dipping so with with being in music for about the past 30 odd years music music industry has changed phenomenally like from record sales to MTV now not really playing music videos to streaming Spotify iTunes during that time did you see like holy fuck something massive changing like we cannot the way that we are marketing ourselves cannot happen anymore like did you see that coming or was it like um, yeah I did
2: and and actually it was interesting because I you know I I've always been into tech and I so and I've never been afraid of it um, and I very early on I I thought you know with the birth of Napster I thought well it's gonna work itself out but it's all going to change and there's certainly not going to be anyone at a CEO's level trying to You know deal with this in time so it's it's going to be an issue but we've had a a fantastic voyage and ride and uh i feel nothing but grateful for that that's the way i saw it from the very beginning the interesting thing is is it had a greater effect on much larger scale you know things you know bigger selling bands were hit much harder much Mm. faster our fans were different i mean we kind of kept selling records for five years more than we should have. Uh, maybe even ten. I mean, I, I feel like it didn't really get it noticeably uh, different. Uh, it, it, it hadn't changed. It was probably some, somewhere in the early to mid-2000s when yeah. I thought, okay,
1: well, here it goes. I mean, something that you could not have seen was Tony Hawk. Like and the the popularity of that video yeah. game had on the punk industry, yeah. like it seemed to give everyone a kind of a vitamin C boost. Of yeah. like everyone is now playing this game, so therefore they're searching out these bands. Yeah, how was that for you? Like, were you like, what the fuck? Awesome. Why? Why is our music selling like all of a sudden? Like, out it was nowhere? shocking.
2: Yeah, I remember thinking, this is a video game for skateboarding, which <laughs> is, you know already had 14 deaths in my life cycle you know like in, in 14 cycles of death oh, look at this isn't that lovely i oh,
0: you
1: guys like like a, I'm good well, man, cooking. Cooking. look at that
2: check that out I, I bet yeah he's he's quite good actually he's really good at that he makes the best nachos that guy okay. um, check it out yeah so uh, that was surprising and I just didn't expect right, it to be think- so popular, you know? Yeah. And, but it was great. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, we never really made actual kind of high-budget videos. We didn't solicit radio. We didn't do a lot of the things that a lot of the other bands in our world were doing. And um, that was just a really funny way to have a single. Yeah. Be- I mean, to this day, it's the most popular song in our set. We have to play it every show, <laughs> and we got lucky. It could have been a song I really didn't like.
1: <laughs> you know, I kind of enjoy playing that song still, which is very strange. But you've still got a history of video games. Can I understand that you're actually in uh, Watchdogs too. Yes. How the fuck did that? I did come a bunch about? of uh, of the uh,
2: voiceover work for that. I spent three to four full days in their studio doing voices for it. And I've never played the game, so I don't know if I actually made it into the game. But I did more than one character, and uh, there's a part where I whistled May 16th. They wanted me to do that. Their character walking along, whistling yeah. May 16th. Um, I'm guessing none of it actually got in there. But I've never we never play the
1: game. I've never played the game. Yeah, I, just, I, I don't have a, about a
2: machine, so... Yeah. And when it came out, I, I think we'd had a PlayStation 2 or something for my daughter when she was really young, and it wasn't available. for that. <laughs> We didn't have an Xbox or any, Or maybe it was an Xbox, but we had, like, the first-generation one anyway. So I, I saw it, and I thought, oh, wow, I should buy it. And then, of course, it didn't, you know. I didn't put it
1: Didn't work. Yeah, just yeah. What the fuck? But I
2: think we got a song in it. Yeah, I was supposed to have a solo song in it as well, but I know that didn't happen. It was interesting. It was a bit of a failure because the first Watch Dogs game sold something like forty million copies, so it was huge, and they'd expect they had fully expected this to be Ubisoft, the company, their Montreal-based company, but they're worldwide. The producers that I work with told me, yeah, this should be one of our biggest selling games. And I thought, oh, this is so great. Maybe I have a job here. (laughs) Because I really love doing the voiceover work. It's so fun. You know, uh, the first day that I worked on that, they had the studio with multiple rooms. And I wasn't allowed to see the other people they were employing because they had a a lot of security issues. I had to fill out these papers, sign all this stuff about non-disclosure stuff where I couldn't speak about it couldn't talk about it until the game was released wasn't allowed to meet the other people so imagine there's these people on microphones and I can hear them in my headphones and they're in the building and we're basically doing a play
1: yeah it was that's weird so, man
2: so fun
1: yeah I loved it so is like vocal work something you like to do like like doing like, there's a lot of adult cartoons right now going on yeah. um, I, mean, I mean I would love to do Mr. It. Pickles is probably the one that yeah. like, I think everyone kind of metalheads really enjoy yeah so yeah. yeah I like
2: that uh, what's the one that they're always watching upstairs what was that? on the Netflix one the cartoon show that they have been watching upstairs a lot big what's mouth? that
1: big mouth oh, big mouth that was fucking big hilarious. mouth is good smart as well yeah it's really great. smart about puberty and how yeah. he, how he goes about talking about it's it it's just awesome yeah
2: um, yeah I, I mean that would be a lot of fun but that game did not do well and I haven't gotten any calls. So I guess my that was my career in uh, voiceover.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. How
2: hey, do you make a resume
1: with one gig? You had know? a shot, man. You had a shot. Yeah. Um, so we're going to keep moving on because I'm very aware of time. So Me First in the Gimme Gimmies. Uh, I've, I've heard interviews whereby she spoke about Me First Gimme Gimmies. And then you were like, how the fuck is this band who is meant to be like a gimmicky band is, is selling more well, in, I, in regards to Lagwagon than, than what I'm doing with 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 this covers band, like was it? Were you legitimately pissed off? Not like, a little bit. I mean, in, I mean, of course I'm in the
2: band, so I was. You know, it, I had mixed feelings. Yeah. But yeah, there was a small part of me that thought when we put out our first uh, full length and it, it sold this X amount of copies, you know, and it outsold the latest Slagwagon album in like a month or something. I thought to myself, but this isn't even real music <laughs> this is a cover band but you know I guess if you look at the people that were in the band it you know it, uh, we had a Foo Fighter and we had a guy from No Effects and you know it was uh, well actually Chris joined the Foo Fighters later I think but I, you know it, it kind of makes sense yeah I don't know they're fun records I think people like the records because they're fun to listen to you know
1: they are fun Yeah,
2: they're, they're a good records. <clears throat> and hey I'm not complaining.
0: <laughs> it, it was it going, like man. right
2: on time. Yeah, Just about when like things were getting real tight, I had another income, which was <laughs> nice. So I could keep doing what I do.
1: I have to ask about one of the albums, though, and that's um, Ruining Johnny's Bar Mitzvah. Yeah. How did that come about? Was that literally someone that you knew, knew was doing a bar mitzvah and so you yeah. got invited? His father, uh, I forgot his from David Wixon,
2: Ran a publishing company, and his pub- publishing company, Wixen, I think, had done a sort of deal with Fat Records, like where they were collecting for them or something. You know, I mean, that that, that kind of thing happened a lot back then. There would be a, a separate entity dealing with publishing works, and I, I guess, uh, Johnny, his son, really liked our band. Yeah, and so he asked Mike. Um, would you be willing to pay my son's Bar Mitzvah? Uh, we'll pay you this or something. And then we all talked about it. I said, yeah, cool. And then Mike to his credit had the brilliant idea of making a live record and doing totally different songs that aren't on any of the records. Um, the part about sort of ruining the bar mitzvah, I think that just happened naturally. <laughs> no, no plan. <laughs> I think I think there were a lot of old people there that were in the back plugging their ears. It was a venue not meant for music. It yeah. was incredibly loud. It was all hard services and it was just. I remember when we were playing, just looking at these grandmothers and grandfathers <laughs> in the back, like plugging their ears and just going, "What am I? What in the hell is happening?" And then we had all these little 13-year-old boys, you know, sort of slam-dancing in front of us. It was hilarious.
1: Um, yeah. So whose idea was it just to keep the recording going? Like, throughout? When you had your break, it just keeps going. Because that, for me, is, is just fucking amazing oh, um, in the album.
2: You know, I don't know. We recorded the concert. and we, There's actually quite a few songs that aren't on the record that we played that I think we released maybe online or something. Um you know, I just don't know. We got the film, we got the, the recorded footage, and maybe Ryan Green, who was out in a truck, he was in a camper outside of the thing, you know, recording it. You mm-hmm. know, he had lines coming from stage that are going outside to this little camper he had, that we rented. And maybe he just forgot to press stop. Mm-hmm. I don't recall why that happened, but... Um, the charm and the beauty of that record is the the actual things that are happening. Hey, everybody, the ice cream bar's out. You know what I mean? It's amazing. It just blows my mind. I mean, I can still listen to that record and and laugh. Yeah. And I remember being there and looking over at my wife several times throughout the set, looking at her and just going, what the hell is going (laughs) on? What is this? What are we doing here?
1: So they're a band that, if I'm completely honest, I, I've discovered from researching for this interview, and it's a band that I've really enjoyed, and ah, cool. and it's a band that obviously has stopped because of tragic circumstances. Yeah, um, we've
2: had two drummers since yeah. Derek, and another one of them overdosed, and yeah, it just seems a bit cursed. It's like Spinal Tap. <laughs>
1: It's not a good band for drummers. Clearly not. Yeah. But something that I do talk, try and talk She's, about uh, a, a lot in this podcast is mental health and how, how, it's played, mm-hmm. it's, how it's played its part in what I'm doing and also in the punk genre in general, because obviously Tony Sly is a huge part of it and is a huge part of, it's been a huge part of your life. Yeah. For yourself, how have you... Obviously, two deaths, well, three deaths, must have played a, a huge part of your own mental health and well-being. How mm-hmm. have you dealt with that personally? And, and is it something that you, you're aware of now in the punk community where people try to embrace yeah. people to talk a lot more than probably what they might have done before?
2: Well, it's a tough question to answer and at least, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know that um, there's been a lot more deaths than the ones that you know about. Uh, and I think it's just part of the deal.
0: Mm.
2: This is a kind of lifestyle that we live where there's a lot of drugs and a lot of uh, people are drawn to it that maybe already had mental health issues. I'm pretty sure everyone in my band does, and it's just it's just part of it, you know. I think you know the first time that you lose somebody that you really love, it's obviously the most difficult the next time, it's still just as difficult but it's different Mm. and the evolution is not so much that you become a sociopath, it's more a matter of the wisdom of understanding your process of grief I don't know but they haven't gotten easier Tony was the hardest for me and i that's the latest, well has been two or three cents actually it's amazing I don't know it's just um, yeah it's just part of it I guess it's not a great answer I'm sorry no 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 it's, it's fine. difficult to answer there's actually. no
1: right or wrong answer really sure. is there with, with, with your own because it's easy for someone who has maybe sat and thought about it a lot and, and they, they've, they've structured it into having an answer mm-hmm. whereabouts I think someone who doesn't really have an answer is probably the most honest Way of of talking about it because it's not it's not black and white. It's so grey, and, yeah. and talking about your own mental health, and then also, as you said, like you you're got a band, so you got a family, so you're all kind of looking out for each other's mental health. But you also don't want to pry into what they're doing. You don't want to go, "Hey, mate, don't do that," because then all of a sudden you're like you're you the father. and You don't want to be that. Yeah. So yeah there's no right or wrong answer I don't think when, when something interesting
2: about, about that you just touched on is that the, the, the one thing that I have seen is my immediate family my actual family when there's a death in my family I sort of naturally fall into a role of uh, counsel mm-hmm. and it's perhaps because you know I've been so close to this kind of lost so many times that it's just, I have some understanding maybe that others don't. I mean, normal people don't lose more than a few people in their life, other than their the elderly, you mm-hmm. know. So when someone dies far before their time in a normal person's life, it's it's lifetime of devastation, you know. And um, that probably would have been true for me if had there only been one. But after some time, I mean, just kind of. Find a way to honor them by carrying on the memory of them by speaking about them and writing about them.
1: Well, in your career, I mean, like Tony's clearly played a big part because you, you went solo with him on, on a record that mm-hmm. you did. Yeah, do you think you needed someone like Tony to kind of help you, kind of go do this alone, like leave the band alone and go at it
2: without sounding? You know, arrogant. I think it was the reverse. I think I had already made a record, and then Tony you know, I did the split. I didn't release it, though. I just had already been doing that for a while. And it's natural for a songwriter to play an instrument by themselves to write, you know? So I think it's something that most songwriters do anyway. Um, But I think he was... I was very scared when I first did it the first time I played I played in Texas at a thing called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas and I remember that show vividly I mean I remember I sat in this chair in the middle of this bar I was packed this pub with just the gills and I was in this chair like so awkward I didn't even <laughs> I don't even think I had a guitar strap you know and, and I, I, I was shaking and I was really nervous but um, I think there's always the fear of making something bad, you know, or doing something that you're not, you shouldn't be doing. And I think Tony and I, I know that he felt that way when we first started doing it, because, you know, we grew up listening to things like Simon and Garfunkel, and, you know, I, I was a huge Elliott Smith fan. There were all these people that I worshipped, you know, singer-songwriters that had been doing that, and that was their thing. And here we are a couple of guys from punk bands doing this thing that maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we're not supposed to, but it's just a natural progression because that's how you write. Yeah. Um, But once you do it for a little while, I mean, you find this freedom and that's addictive. This, this thing where when you're playing by yourself, you're not coordinating with others. So (laughs) you can, on the fly, you could change the key of the song you can change the tempo at any given moment in the song yeah. if you are emoting a song and you're playing an acoustic you can literally stop on a chord and then sing a line without a guitar back you know <coughs> and <coughs> sorry I got some of my lungs <clears throat> um, yeah so that that kind of thing was so appealing to me and Tony and I talked about that a lot so once you do it you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of in yeah so, it's hard to leave it
1: so kind of that fraternity must have been like revival tour for me is is one of the tours that I wish would come back and I wish um, Chuck yeah. would start doing it again because obviously you played a part with Frank and um, I did about a week yeah of one of the tours in the States how, how was that how was it like being surrounded by creative weird. peers And it was weird because it's there's a lot of throw and go
2: stuff on that tour like yeah they're, they're, you don't really get songs in advance to learn and there's a lot of this kind of you're good enough you can do it just come on stage and start playing and um, that's not something that I really um, now I would be so much better at that but I was always more of the rehearse and rehearse and rehearse until it's as perfected as it can be in, you know for me and so to go on that tour, and there was just a number of songs that we were going to play every night that I didn't even know. I had these little paper plates, and I wrote cheat sheets on them in a Sharpie before the first show. And I had like a stack of them, and I was like trying to kick them. And then I finally resorted to just turning my mute tuner on. And just, there were like 12 people on stage, so why the hell did I have to be in the mix? I just (laughs) muted my pedal and just pretended to play. (laughs) That was my trial by fire the first night of that tour. But, you know, it's a cool thing It's good for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, Chuck's another one of those guys who've been doing that a long time, and he's really natural. And, of course, Frank Turner. He's a natural. I mean... Uh, that was a cool tour. I mean, it was the first time I met Frank, and we got along well once we spoke you know it was a few days on the bus a little bit awkward but then we started talking he's a good good chap Mm. good guy bloke good bloke he's a good old bloke yeah good Um, mate
1: so another Uh, another good mate of yours um, who has been on this path uh, Chris Cresswell yes Um, I listened to his uh, podcast that he did with you Oh, and yeah. uh, very, very warm, very fun. Clearly yeah. you two got on. But something came up which kind of freaked me out. And you seemed so cool about it. And that was about losing your teeth. Like you, I think you spoke about chewing nig- 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 uh, gum yeah. and then teeth falling out. Yeah, For me, that is scary as fuck. Like, because yeah. it's the only part of your body you can literally see fail on you. Yeah. Like literally, fuck you, I'm off. Yeah. And then it's gone.
2: Some people have eye phobias, teeth phobias. I've had, they look fine, but I've had really poor, uh, you know, teeth my whole life. They just, I've, just about every tooth in my mouth is either fake or had a cavity or a root canal or something. I have so many dead nerves. I mean, just a week ago I was chewing the gum and uh, one of these molars over here broke in half. I just keep getting them repaired in Europe because it's cheaper out it. here. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've got make, two make
2: dentists it. in Germany. Yeah, That's my thing. And I, I, I just try to deal with the pain until I get back to Germany and then I go see a dentist. i got to get this one fixed in June. With the
1: Do you let them a bit more loose in Europe because you realise if I fuck something up, it's, it's practically free.
2: It's fine. Maybe. I know that very early on in touring in Europe, I realised that, uh, I'll say Germany again, but in certain European countries that, that there seem to be less rules. You know, I remember hanging out at this bar in Kreuzberg in Berlin called the Franken, and that was like the first, that's where our agency is based, in Berlin, in Kreuzberg, and this bar called the Franken was like a regular thing for us then. And I remember being in that bar and just drinking, like the band would drink like a 100 shots of Fernet Manka, And then we were, like, doing things like lighting the bar on fire. I mean, like, a table in the bar on fire and each other on fire and fights, throwing chairs. Just crazy shit that happened that would never, ever be able to happen where I'm from. Mm. You would get arrested. But people would just be laughing. Ah, those crazy guys. (laughs) You know. Um, So, in the early days, yeah. A lot of wild times. Yeah. It was so fun. But, you know, we're pretty old now. We're all pretty mellow now. Most of us come back after the show to the bus and put our pajamas on. Oh
1: no joke. Man, why not? Yeah. So I'm very aware that we haven't spoken about albums, because we've got like Hoss, Double Platinum, Hugely Love, Let's Talk About Feelings, Blaze, resolved, and Hang. But we're coming up to an hour, so we haven't got time to do all that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your solo stuff very quickly. You're you about to put out an album, uh, Let Me Know When You Guys Give Up when you give up you give up sorry so that's coming out in July it should have been you guys give up it's (laughs) a little more casual it's
2: a little bit relaxed isn't it let me know when you give up guys guys
1: (laughs) I I like that so that's coming out in July or June right July July so are you going to be coming back to the UK and touring that or is it going to be I am doing
2: I already had booked a tour before we decided when the album was coming out and the album is a full band album okay, there's nice. drummers on it and whatnot. And, yeah. and um, I have a two week run but I, there's no UK shows that it was just like a little tour I got offered that I decided to do and I'm just doing it solo, performing solo every night and I guess I'm going to try to do renditions of the songs on that record without a band which should be interesting it's a little bit weird you know I mean it should have been a tour with a band you know um But that's really difficult to do on the money that I make on solo tours. I'm not sure if it's anything I'll be able to do. Mm. I guess it just depends on the way things go. But I'm really, really happy with the record. I think it's my favorite. um, It's definitely my favorite solo album. I feel like everyone
1: has to say that, though, when it's that new one.
2: It's true, but I mean, I knew when I was writing it that that it was something special for me. You know, I had this great concept. I, I... I just had this great synergy the whole record with the people I worked with and it just it was so easy yeah and, and when it was done you know everybody involved was like holy shit this is a great record you know and I, I it just felt great because you know we're, we're sort of meant to make worse music as we get older I think that's a thing I think you can make that argument by citing many of the most famous you know writers of all time they get a little soft Um, And this is not heavy music necessarily, but I I think I'm writing better than I've ever written now. But I could be wrong. But it's okay, because I'm the only person I care about, you know? I'm happy if I'm happy. And I feel that way about the new Lagwagon record. We just finished a new album, too, and it's great. I'm really happy. So maybe a lot of people say that, but I don't. You could probably find a quote from me when an album came out where I said, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sometimes the opposite of the, the reasonable promoter. You're the PR. You're yeah, I'm not a memory good memory. PR. Per. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely more often told by the publicist to shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: let's end the podcast there with just uh, you telling yourself to shut your mouth. Yeah. Shut up. up. Thanks for your time, man. It's yeah, no, a pleasure. pleasure. That was you. great. Excellent. Love it. The loudest in the room
0: are now rewarded. The academics gone into hiding. They can't control their students or the far police. The new speak are well in dream. The debate is now controlled. Show trials and shame. Solitary fight at simply being right. Pick a tribe, boy, scripted side. Peace of mind in a picture from a
1: Thank you. It- Joey for giving up so much of his time. Joey's new album, "Let Me Know When You Give Up," is available to pre-order now on Fat Records and will be released on Friday, July fifth. Go pick up a copy and support a good dude. Also, a shout out to Slam Dunk for letting us come and hang. Make sure you are there next year. Their lineups are usually pretty solid. Uh, keep an eye out on their social media at Slam Dunk Music. And while you're at it, make sure you follow Punks in Pubs at Punks in Pubs across all social media sites. Like i said at the top of the show we will be going to punk rock holiday and we need petrol money so please go pick up a t-shirt 15 pounds you can pick them up at etsy go to the etsy site type in punks and pubs in the search engine and go and support the pod or click the link on this bio where it says buy a punks and pubs t-shirt don't have the cash right now then don't worry brothers and sisters just go and tell your mates about the pod either face to face by using your mouth or via social media or why not ping someone a link to the episode via WhatsApp let's wrap up this mammoth of an episode and introduce the band who will be playing out the show this week, they hail from the happiest place in the world according to the world happiness report because that's a thing, Finland, Helsinki they are called Theresa Bank if you're going to rebellion this year they will be playing that festival so keep an eye out for them, Uh, they're also going to be doing a short tour in the uk in august so if you're based in the motherland make sure you go and watch them if you're based anywhere else outside of the uk uh keep an eye out they might be playing your way soon this track is called strike the match that's it for this week as always if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up until next time bye bye